I'm Taylor. I'm the pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and just good to see you. It's good to worship with you this morning. I need it. So this is, so 1 Corinthians 9, we're walking through this text together, walking through this letter, um, hitting every single passage. And so this is a perfect, this wasn't planned by us, it was planned by the Lord, as are all things, but um, this is July 4th. Happy July 4th weekend, by the way. And we have a lot of rights as American citizens um, to be thankful for, and one of them is that we have the right to free assembly um, of worship, according to conscience. And so this is, we're enjoying that right right now. And a lot of people around the world don't get it, and most people in history haven't gotten it. Um, and so, but this is the perfect text where Paul is saying, look, I have all these rights that I'm entitled to as a human being, but really as a Christian and as an apostle, and if any of them get in the way of my preaching the gospel more effectively, most effectively, if any of my rights, things that I am entitled to, that Christ has bought for me, that he's given to me, if any of these things make me a less effective witness, mean that less people might be saved, I cut them out, I throw them overboard, I relinquish them. That's it, sermon done. Y'all ready to worship some more? <laughs> some people are like, please. Um, man, what a, perfect, what a perfect text for this weekend where we celebrate rights that we, are, we have inherited um, in various ways. And we are, we are a rights-soaked culture, and we'll get to that. And so I'm just excited to jump into this, this word from Paul uh, and, and from the Lord through Paul this morning. I wanna just talk about a life of freedom, point one, really verses one through 14, first off, a life of freedom. Um, again, like I said, he, he starts out with the first few verses, the first section, just talking about his rights that he has as a believer and as an apostle. Um, he talks about, in verse four, a right to eat and drink, and really that gets into, in, under the old Torah, under the old Jewish law, and Paul was a Jew and a Pharisee and one of the most stringent keepers of the law. He had massive chunks of the Hebrew Bible, the, what we call the Old Testament, memorized. And he lived his life according to the strictures and the dictates of the law. But he said, I'm free in Christ. All that stuff was to point to him, and he's fulfilled it, all that ceremonial law. And so I'm free to eat and drink as I please. But if I want to reach a Jew or someone else that's offended by these things, I will submit myself voluntarily to those things. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. But he's like, I have rights. I have rights to eat and drink as I please, thanks be to God. I have a right to marry. Don't I have the right to marry a believer? And Paul was single, so he didn't, right? But he's like, I have a right. I mean, Peter, Cephas here, Peter is his, is his other name, uh, his Greek name. Cephas was his um, Aramaic name. Uh, Peter, Petros, he was married. He was also an apostle. Others of the apostles and disciples were married, and Paul knew he had that right. He had that right um, to marry another believer. Don't be unequally yoked. If you're a believer, marry a believer. Paul had that right in Christ um, and through the scriptures. Am I not, and he kind of camps out on this, am I, do I not have the right to be financially supported by you, church at Corinth? I've ministered to you, and he actually says, what is my, what is my work? You are. You are. He says, you are my workmanship. Man, he has worked in such a way so as to see them by the grace of God. What does Paul's work produce? To see them saved from hell. Do you think that he could rightly require of them some support? Yes, of course he could, and, he's, and he says that in a lot of ways. He, he brings up this obscure verse from the Old Testament. It's buried in the Torah. It's toward the end of the law. Um, in Deuteronomy 25, 4, he talks about oxen. He even brings up beasts of burden. And he says, um, in Deuteronomy 25, 4, he says, uh, does the law not say, in the law of Moses, you shall not, verse nine, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And he's talking about the law that basically 
God cared uh, even for the animals in the law that he gave the Jews. And so he said, look, when, a, when an ox is doing its work in the field and plowing and it's, it's hooked to a plow, don't, uh, don't, don't put a muzzle on its mouth so that as it, as it works, it can eat with an open mouth. And so Paul's like, that's a wonderful example of God's equity and his care for all of his creatures, but was it really for oxen that this was written? He says, no, it was written for our instruction. And that's just a little aside. Paul's saying everything in the law, these things that seem totally irrelevant to us that are about oxen and plowing in the law 3,000 plus years ago, Paul is saying here something amazing as far as the interpret, his, his interpretation of God's word. It was written for you, church at Corinth. It was written for us to be instructed. There is such equity and, and such helpful principle in the law. And so he's saying, look, even the ox was worthy of his wages. Don't muzzle him. And so when people are doing their job, they deserve payment. And he goes on to talk sort of lastly about Levitical priests in verses 13 and 14. And he says, look, the whole Old Testament system was such that there were 13 tribes and the half tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh made for 13, the two sons of Joseph instead of 12. But the Levites, they were set aside and they were special in a bunch of senses because they were charged with being the tribe that took care of the locus of activity in the civic life of Israel. The whole of Israel encamped around the temple. And when they stopped being um, um, an itinerant uh, people, and they, they, they settled in Jerusalem under David, the tabernacle that moved around became a temple. And all of Israel sort of rings the temple. And all of its laws come around the sacrificial system, the sacrifices day and night in the temple. And, and that's the place where God and man meet. And the Levites were given charge of that. And they weren't given land like the other tribes. They weren't given land. They were the priests. They were the pastors of the people, and they weren't given land, and God said they, their wage is there to be supported by the people, um, by taking care of the temple and being able to eat of the sacrifices and being supported by the people. So um, Paul, Paul goes ahead and says, we who preach the gospel, he equates those in the church that preach the gospel to the Levitical priests. So you see one thing he's doing there? He's saying, we, the church, are the Israel of God. And he's saying, we, just like the Levites were supported, have the right to ask to be supported. This is a great, this is a great text for a preacher to preach, okay? <laughs> hey, uh, it's, the reason I make a, it's one of the reasons I make a salary. It's the re, one of the reasons that um, I'm supported in what I do, uh, in feeding you guys, in equipping you guys, in preaching the word, in pastoring. It's a scriptural principle. And Paul says, I have every right as a preacher of the gospel and as an apostle to ask this from you, so it's, um, it, uh, this is my life of freedom. I'm freed to be able to ask for these things. But again, sort of pulling back from the rights that Paul says he's privy to, um, our culture is a culture saturated in our rights, both the things that we actually have rights to and our perceived rights, right? We're always hearing about our rights, our, our rights as American citizens, our human rights as global citizens, women's rights, um, workers' rights, uh, L LGBTQ rights, and I could go on. I could literally spend the next 20 minutes just talking about the rights that we hear about all the time, right? We are obsessed as Americans, I think, with, with rights. Um, some of them uh, are true rights and some of them are not, but we, we are always laying claim to our rights. And then you sort of come down from the cultural setting and you think about the rights that we sort of as individuals lay claim to. Man, when I come home, I would never say this because I value my own life, but I have, I have sort of in, my, in the depth of my being, there's this tendency to think when I'm being 
lazy and when I'm feeling entitled, which is quite often, to think when I push through that door after a day's work, uh, man, I have the right to put up my feet. I have the right to be served. Rather than serving, rather than getting on the floor, breathing, praying, clearing my head, going to work 2.0 of the day, and getting on the floor with my kids, serving my wife, and she's not here, she's serving kids this morning, but if she were here, um, she, would, she would resonate with, with the statement that I'm about to make, which is that I don't always do that well, and that I often don't do that well. But I, I, I am obsessed, and we are obsessed with our perceived rights, both in a, a home setting and in other various settings. Um, and so I think this is a really helpful word for us this morning. It certainly has been to me, and I pray it will continue to be. So that's Paul's life of freedom that he talks about in the first 14 verses. Moving on to his life of forfeit, though, he really does a switch. This is a powerful part of the text. He really does a switch. Verse 12, verses 15 through 27, take us through the end of this chapter. His problem is this, and I just stated at the beginning, if these freedoms get in the way of the gospel for Paul, he throws them overboard. That's the whole chapter. That's it. That's the whole kit and caboodle. That's the $64,000 you know, thing. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the freight of this text. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more, Paul, who has labored for the salvation and welfare of these people. Nevertheless, here's the pivot word, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying that, look, if my right is an obstacle to the gospel, I let it go. I relinquish it. It's a life for Paul of forfeit. It's a life of forfeit. Um, so, Paul forgoes um, lots of rights that Christ has secured him for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the people he's serving. So again, he doesn't eat and drink what he wants sometimes if it would offend them. He talks about that in verses uh, 19 through 23. He doesn't, and here's the thing again, he doesn't, even though he could well live off of church support, if anyone could lay claim to that, any pastor in history, Paul could. Homie was... Uh, again, I have, a, I, have a, I have a person in here that loves it when I say homie from the pulpit, but uh, Paul uh, was, he went through hell and high water to love the people that God gave to him and to plant churches and to preach the gospel. He was literally stoned, beaten within an inch of his life so many times that he lost count. But then there's a part in 2 Corinthians where he actually counts up some of the, all these things. <laughs> um, if anyone could live off, could make a case for living off of church support, he had this freedom, he had these rights, but he, he forewent them for the sake of the gospel. What does this mean in his life? It meant probably, it's a bit of a mystery, but probably that, now he did receive some church support, we have evidence of that in other letters, but he went out of his way to not be dependent financially on the churches, maybe one, so that his message would be more effective in a couple ways. One, he didn't want them to think, you're my meal ticket, I'm working just so I can get paid. He wanted, and secondly, sort of as a corollary, to, for his message to have the most possible punch so that the most possible people might be saved, so that the most possible people might have the image of Christ fully formed in them, so that the most possible people might be reconciled to God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because, man, when you start receiving payment from people and that becomes your sole means of support, there's a sense in which people call it uh, gold, uh, uh, handcuffs of gold golden shackles. It's very easy to start palliatively preaching. 
in such a way that it tickles people's ears and the people that are giving are very happy to hear what you're saying because they're not being challenged by the gospel. That is a huge temptation. And Paul's like, I will have zero of that. I'm not gonna be a doctor that only tells you what you want to hear. If you have cancer, I'm gonna tell you. And then I'm gonna point to the surgeon and say, he can cut it out. He died to make you free, to set you free from that disease. He became a disease so that you could be whole. So Paul, I think this is one of the reasons that he's a tent maker. That's literally his trade, is he works with animal skins to make tents. He's a tanner and a tent maker, and he works with his hands to sew that. Why? It's a right of his to be, to be supported, but so that the gospel might hit with utmost effectiveness, so that the most possible people might be saved. He lets go of rights to grab uh, more for Jesus. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all of that, I might win more of them. That kind of hunger, I love how Lynn sort of upped her passion a little bit as she was reading. If you'll notice, I I noticed only because she said it beforehand, but the last few verses where Paul talks about uh, beating his body and submitting himself to any discipline so that he might win the prize, she got a little choked up because, I might be wrong here, but her granddad, that was a really special, special passage to him. And you could see why. Paul is preaching here. This is all of his being being poured out to these Corinthians. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, a revivalist the last century, said, for it would be better, I wish I could read it in his voice. He has this like high-pitched whine. For it, will, it were better that he should be, quote, the prisoner of the Lord for a few years than that his fellow men should be the devil's prisoners in hell forever. He, through love, the very love of Christ, by which he laid his life down, was willing to lay aside things that he had rights to, to see people won for Christ. In verse 16, he says, woe to me. That's an Old Testament way of saying, that's a Hebrew way of saying, I'm cursed. A curse beyond my head if I don't preach the gospel. That is a word of warning to preachers. And I would say to all who are in Christ, Not, hey, it's nice if I can preach the gospel to my neighbors and coworkers, but woe to us, knowing what we know, that God Almighty gave up everything, left heaven to come to earth to bring us to God by being eviscerated on the cross for us. Woe to us if that isn't the prism through which all of the light in our life flows to make the calculus by which we make all of our decisions. Woe to us if we do not arrange everything in our lives and every right that we have in order to preach that beautiful word of hope to as many people as possible. And it will look different with every person in your life. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. That's where community comes in. Wisdom, we need it. Um, The key, I think, is that Paul's rights did not identify him. If you kind of dig down and like, Okay, he has this amazing passion. Where did it come from? Obviously, the Holy Spirit. He had been saved by the blood of the Lamb. But if you kind of keep digging, I think part of this is that we, a lot of times we allow our rights, we sort of attach our identity to I'm an American or I'm wealthy or, and I have a right to sort of live as I please or I'm a woman or I'm a man. And all these things can be true, but the scriptures are clear. These things should not be our core identifier. They can be true, our race, our nationality, our sex, and on, and our wealth, and on and on and on it goes. These things can be true, 
But if they identify us, then we're going to cling to them to the last breath. And for Paul, that wasn't the case. There's a, um, there's a movie called Chariots of Fire, which if you've been here for any amount of time, you know of because it's my favorite movie. It was set in Edinburgh and in Paris um, in the early, earlier part of the 20th century. And it was a true story about a guy named Eric Little who was a strong believer, ended up dying in a concentration camp in China for his love for the Chinese, but was an Olympic athlete and he won the gold in, in, in not his event because of his principles. He ran not on the Sabbath. That was his run and he said, I'm a man of principles, I can't do it, I won't do it. And so it's a true story about this man of principle um, winning the gold in Paris in not even his event. And then he could have chased that down, but he didn't. He left it aside and he went and he died in China. But there's this, one of the great parts about the movie is there's this, he has a foil. Eric Little has a true life foil that sets him in stark relief. And that's a man named Harold Abrams. He's a Jew, um, a secular Jew, I think, from what I can tell. I haven't done research, but he's a Cambridge man. He's He's been given everything, he's well-educated, he's super fast, super gifted, and he too is on the same team as Little, on the British team going to Paris, 1924, to run the Olympics. And there's this great line where he, um, he compares himself, he watches Little run, and he's reflecting Harold Abrams is, not a believer. And he says, I have 10 seconds, he's a sprinter, just like Little, I have 10 seconds on that 100 yard, 100 meter sprint to justify my existence. One track, a meter wide, 100 meters long, and 10 seconds. For me, I'm only as good, if I'm identifying in my craft, I'm only as good as my last sermon. What is it for you? What is it for you? And if it's anything but Christ, we are in big trouble. If it's anything that can be taken from you, you're in big trouble, as good as it may be, spouse, kids, whatever, idea of a spouse, a job. Um, and so, but he's, he, he watches Little run and he has this piece of paper in his hand. He's in the stands and he, he has this piece of paper, Harold Amos in his hand. He watches Little run and when Little runs, he kicks his head back. True story. In the movie he does it, but his sister in real life said he does it even more. He did it even more in real life, just like a wild animal. And Harold Abrams is watching him run and he just, he's just like so tense watching him. He sees this passion and this release and this, here's the word, freedom. He runs free. Because, because Little doesn't let his running identify him. He is bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. And so actually all that is just icing on the cake. And as he runs, he worships. God made me for China, but he also made me fast. Like I said a couple weeks ago, right? He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And you can only run free and wild like that if that's not the thing that identifies you, you see? So Paul is free, and as a free man, he's willing to forfeit all these things that he is privy to. They don't identify me. Get them away. I don't even care if they're taking away from my obsession with preaching the gospel and seeing people saved. And how can Paul do that? It's because he has this Christ in him. Paul says this in Philippians 3, Though I myself has reason, reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, let me just brag on myself a little bit, Paul's saying. I have more. He's talking about how he's the best of the Hebrews. He was educated. He's at Harvard, summa cum laude, okay, in their world. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Can anyone else here say that? I certainly can't. 
But whatever gain I had, get this, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And on he goes, and it's a pity not to preach it, but there it is, Philippians chapter three. It's a wonderful text, and this is what drove Paul. This is what drove Paul. He was willing to become weak to win the weak. You see that in, eight, um, in verse 22, rather, excuse me. He literally says that. Um, he says it in, at the end of chapter eight. Um, he was willing to let go of his rights to identify with those who, who were offended by meat and to become a vegetarian, I said at the end of last week, if he needed to, I will never eat meat again if it means winning one more soul for Jesus Christ. He's driven. It's his calculus. What is your calculus? You have one. You are passing everything in your life through it. Is it a right? Is it a perceived right? Is it a pleasure? Is it something other than being bought and paid for by the Jesus Christ and freed up to be able to chuck anything else overboard if it gets in the way of knowing him and making him known? Jesus Christ, in the chapter before, Philippians 2, Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. Do you know your salvation hangs in this line? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He let it go. He emptied himself. He came down and he found you. Who identified with the weak? Who identified with the poor? Who identified with the sinful more than our Lord? At ultimate cost to himself. He became your sin on the cross with a smile on his face. Remember the iron giant going up to meet the nuclear warhead? He does it with a smile on his face. Gets blown to bits with a smile on his face because he's taking the hit. He is the shield that takes the hit so you can be behind the shield and be okay. So that we who are weak are made strong. So that we who are are poor are made rich. So that we who are torn asunder in our pursuing after anything under the sun but the one we are made for are brought back to the author and perfecter of our souls, our very creator, our savior, Jesus Christ. So what about us? Surely we can let go of some freedoms because we are free in him, because we are loved in him. We are secure in him. Um, to, in order to know him more <laughs> and to make him known. Can we be a people? Can we be a people that presses into that? Will we ever do that perfectly? Of course not to press into that, to let that be the calculus of our lives. Um, some practicals, you know, this is the, in my mind the kind of thing that you just sort of, it works its way out in us as we get this, this wonderful sublime truth. But eating and drinking, you know, if, if drinking causes someone to stumble, whether believer or unbeliever, or if having a drink would help, <laughs> you know, that's happened in my life some, thankfully, that's always nice. When, uh, Maybe the guy or the girl thinks that you know, Christians are prudes and, and, you know, yeah, and then you kind of, you're like the life of the party. What's up? You know, and you're, uh, or if I did, yeah, okay, I'm just going to stop there. That would actually hurt my witness, yeah, if I came into a room dancing like that. Um, and I've done it before. So it looks different, different in every scenario, doesn't it? 
whether to have a drink, but your calculus is how do I reach this person for Christ? How do I lay aside or take up free as I am? And because I'm free, I can forfeit it for the sake of this person knowing Jesus Christ. It, it, to do with food, to do with drink, um, to do with, we talked about last week, a spouse, um, you know, it, thinking about if you're not married, um, is thinking about, okay, marriage, I can't let that define me. If I'm married, I can't let it define me. If I'm not married, I can't look to that to define me. Um, being freed from that and saying, look, my calculus is, how do I reach the most amount of people for Jesus Christ? Is it married or is it unmarried? Letting that be your calculus. And that Paul talked much more about that in the, in the previous text. Um, our money, our money. And don't worry, after this, I'm gonna bring up something that even touches closer to our perceived autonomy. So if I'm making you uncomfortable saying money, it's about to get a little more uncomfortable, don't worry. Um, our money, again, the same calculus. How can I use it? Money's not evil. The love of money is evil. So it's a grace. Austin Baker likes to say when he's anchoring, he loves to say, it's a grace for one of the reasons we tithe, it's for us. The Lord has everything. He doesn't need our money, but it's for us to be able to be freed more and more of the, this thing that can really tend to get its tentacles around our heart so that we can use it for him, right? Um, our time, here's the thing that I think presses even more. I, I am so jealous for my time, my precious. You know, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, that's my precious is my time. My precious is my time. I love me some money, but I love me some time even more. My convenience, me time, me time. But if we ran me time through the calculus, that right that I think that I have and that I may indeed have, according to culture, even according to family, according to how hard I work, through the calculus of what, with my time, how can I use it to reach the most amount of people for Jesus Christ? If it's getting in the way, I cut it off, I let it go, I say bye-bye for the sake of Christ. Now, as soon as I say that, let me speak out of the other side of my mouth. Some of us will make ministry a mistress and we need to have more margin. We need to put the oxygen mask on so that we can stay healthy for the long run. We need to tend more to our wives or husbands or kids or family. That's important, that's your first ministry. So. As soon as I say the first, let me say the second, it, it takes wisdom, it takes the Holy Spirit, it takes his word, it takes community, doesn't it? But this calculus is the important thing. Um, and let me just say this, let me make it real practical. Our community, our parish communities, our parish families, thinking about, rather than having our ultimate calculus be, this is when we meet, this is what we're comfortable with, this is what we like, Paul would say, rubbish, rubbish. Always reassessing and saying, are we able in the time that we meet and in the way that we meet, the day, the hour, whatever it is, even as we meet here as a people in whatever fashion, reaching the most amount of people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, for Christ. This is our calculus. This is what Paul is driving at here. If it's getting in the way of that, even if it is a right, I lay it aside for the sake of the gospel. Um, and our perceived self-confidence, you know? I mean, so the ultimate no, no, is, is making someone uncomfortable and threatening someone um, sort of with what you say is truth in our culture today, right? So making someone uncomfortable for the sake of Christ to present what you believe to be truth and the only way to life to them, am I opposed to that no matter what? Am I buying something the culture says? Or um, am I, is my calculus to reach them for Christ in whatever way possible? And if making them, them uncomfortable is part of that, then that's what needs to happen. Now, on the other side, I would say, sometimes being very sensitive 
and not saying certain things at certain times, again, so that they might be one to salvation. So it just depends, right? Doesn't it? It just depends. But we don't want to offend. We don't want to make uncomfortable. But I think we don't want to offend is a very worldly, very our culture thing. That's the culture calculus. Let's push that aside and say, but to know Christ and to make him known. Okay. Um, and finally, point three, just briefly, a life of focus. Again, verses 15 through 27, he kind of overlaps this, this amazing focus that he has. Um, we are a serially distracted people. And one thing you see here, if you don't see anything else, is that Paul is a focused individual. He's like, man, I'm not a boxer that's training really hard but just has no focus. I'm just beating, I'm just punching in the air. He's like, I have a target and I'm beating the living daylights out of that one target. And he's like, man, I am, I am running not sort of running hither and thither as a really fast person, submitting myself to all sorts of rigors, but I'm running right toward a single point. And that point is this calculus. It is to know Christ and to make him known. That is what I subject everything in my life to. And man, we are so distracted in our culture. I think we are, we are serially distracted. We are the most distracted people in history. I could almost just say that. You can't ever prove that, but I think it, we have plenty of evidence. We need, God made us to have, another way to say it is priority, rightly ordered loves, focus. Paul has a focus, and it is Christ, and it drives his entire life, and he's calling us to that. And he gives a bunch of examples for that, right? The soldier, the farmer, the athlete. Man, I love the Olympics in part because when you watch the Olympics, you see somebody just put their life on hold. For like at least four years, everything they do is subject to the calculus of winning that stinking medal. And that's for a medal. In Paul's case, he says, for a perishable wreath, some leaves and some glory, and you get to play the national anthem, and then it's done. And then the next day, if that's what you're living for, is the worst day of your life, by the way. Because then you have zero left to live for. You're finished. But if it's to know the eternal, unending God who is love and is truth and made you for himself and to draw others into that in everything that you do, ever, ever, ever farther in and higher up. It's unending. It's unending. It is what we were made for. So if we see Olympic athletes so, so, and I admire them so much, sacrificing for gold, we who have had God come from heaven to earth to leave it all behind to save us, how much more should we be willing to just push it all aside, trim off all the fat for the sake of Christ and his, and his kingdom? Um, let me finish with a story. There's a, I think I've mentioned this movie before, but um, it's, a, it's called Man on Fire. It's kind of older. And uh, Denzel Washington he, he's, he was one of my favorite actors at one time. He hadn't been in a lot lately, but he's, he's the main character. And he's this old, not washed up, but crusty. He's, got, he's done, made some bad choices in his life, but he was a special ops, like bad A. Just a, just a, just a, he could just kill you with his thumb, you know, that kind of guy. And his name's John Creasy in the movie. And he basically finds new reason for, for life in this girl in Mexico City who he's, he's charged with protecting because true to life, there are a ton of kidnappings especially of wealthy, really of wealthy children in Mexico City held for, held for ransom. And so he's charged with protecting her. He's, he, he, at first, it's a very professional relationship, but she's a sweet little, 
girl, and the more he gets to know her, the more he, he falls in love with her. And even if he wasn't being paid, you get the sense that I will do anything to protect this girl. And he, he, he crushes some people, man. But about in the middle of the movie, he gets ambushed by like a whole couple vans full of, of people with machine guns and stuff. And he's alone. And he takes a few of them out, but he gets taken out himself. And they think he's dead, and they leave him for dead, and they take the girl. And the rest of the movie, and here's where the, here's where the title comes from, he is a man on fire. He is totally focused on one thing, getting that girl back. He, he gets better in the hospital, and there's this great scene where the creepy, uh, what's his name? I don't, I don't even have it down here, but the other guy, um, I wish I could remember, Christopher Walken. <laughs> he's his friend, and he's like, he has this great little monologue in the hospital room when Creasy's sort of recovering, and he's, he's telling the chief of police for, in Mexico City, he's like, men are artists, some men, they're artists, you know, and He's like Michelangelo, he did his thing with sculpture and, and uh, Rembrandt with uh, paint. He's like, Creasy's art is death, and he's about to paint his masterpiece. I mean, it's so good. You're just like, oh, yes! I mean, and so he does, man. He does. And he is a man on fire. In the end, should I spoil it? I'm going to. Sorry, Michelle. Whenever I spoil something, Michelle is after. She's like, you spoiled it, no! Hopefully you've seen it. But... It's so redemptive because in the end, he gives his life for her. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. And that's really what Paul's doing. He's giving his rights up. He's giving his life up. He's laying it down because it's already been secured so that others might live. And that is the picture of what Christ does with people because it's a picture of what he did for us, that we might be people on fire with that single focus, willing to lay aside our rights to forego them that others might be saved, that we might know, in that process, we come to know our Savior more, sweeter and sweeter and sweeter all the time. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for being the only God and being a God who is like that, humble, loving to the nth degree, the very, all love comes from you, the definition of love. You're the definition of all that is. Everything that is, is true. Thomas Aquinas, page one, Summa Theologica, and you are I am is one of your names, and because you are, we are, and we only find our being recaptured by coming back to you, and that's only through Christ. It's what we go to now as we come to table. In Jesus' name, amen.